The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Philip Guston Now is unveiled in Boston after its controversial postponement. Queer Britain, the UK's first national LGBTQ plus museum, opens its doors. And a rediscovered work by the 17th century artist Caterina Angela Pierozzi. I talked to Kate Neeson and Megan Bernard, two of the four curators on the team assembled by the Museum of Fine Arts Boston to revise the Philip Guston show that was postponed by four museums in the wake of George Floyd's murder. We discuss how the show and its interpretation have changed in the last two years. Gareth Harris speaks to Matthew Storey, the curator of the inaugural show at a new museum of LGBTQ plus culture in London. Welcome to Queer Britain. And in this episode's Work of the Week, Amy Dawson talks to Candida Lodovica de Angelis Corvi, Global Director at the Colnaghi Gallery about Caterina Angela Pierozzi and the painting attributed to her that's now on display in London. Before all that, the art newspaper has a spring sale in which you can get a 50% discount on the complete and digital-only subscriptions. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the promo code SPRINGPOD. That's one word, all in capital letters, SPRINGPOD. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in the autumn of 2020, the long-planned exhibition Philip Guston Now was postponed by four museums in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests that followed, and museums reckoning with systemic inequity and lack of diversity in their collections and staffing. In September of that year, the directors of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, the Museums of Fine Arts in Houston and Boston, and Tate Modern in London, issued a statement explaining that they were delaying the exhibition until a time at which we think the powerful message of social and racial justice that's at the centre of Philip Guston's work can be more clearly interpreted and to bring in additional perspectives and voices to shape how we present Guston's work to our public. Initially the show was postponed until 2024 but then a revised schedule was released bringing the show forward to this year with the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston being the first venue on the tour and their version of the show opened on the 1st of May. This new presentation is co-curated in Boston by four people Kate Neeson, a guest curator and one of the group of four Guston specialists behind the original version of the show, Megan Bernard, the museum's director of membership, Ethan Lasser, its curator of the art of the Americas, and another guest curator, Terence Washington. I spoke to Kate Neeson and Megan Bernard about the changes and how the exhibition now presents Guston and his subject matter. Kate, I'd like to begin with you. I'd like you to cast your mind back to 2020 and when that decision was made to postpone the show. Can you say something about to what extent, one, were you involved, but also what were the kind of thoughts that were going through the organisers' minds at that time? That was a time of changing opinions and emotions for me and for a lot of people I was talking to. So it brings up a lot narratively. I was not involved in the decision to postpone the show in any direct way. It was a decision made by the four museum directors. I was involved in personal discussion with the partner museum curators across the summer leading up to the moment of postponement. Then it was four of us and the four of us were in touch and thinking 
deeply. I can only speak for myself, but uh, I know I was thinking a lot about the specific institution that I was attached to. So we were, you know, as four curators from four very different museums talking to one another, but I, I do think the situation felt different and the decision was made distinctly at each of the four institutions. I'm a guest curator and I have been for almost four and a half years now, and I've uh, never lived in Boston during that time. So I've always been remote. So my relationship to the MFA was still forming. So much of my work prior to the postponement had taken place in spaces that connected me with our partner museums more than they had yet connected me with MFA Boston. But I'd been hearing over the summer of 2020 from some staff internal to the MFA in Boston about some of their conversations and the depth of their discussion around this show. So I was aware of that um, before I was aware of the director's decisions to postpone. And that meant a lot to me, actually, to know that staff was thinking deeply about the Gustin show and was divided about it. And I took that really seriously. So that actually, I think, helped me absorb the news of the postponement itself and what felt like the shock of that decision. I was helped by knowing that the place that is MFA Boston had needs and uh, certainly audience needs, but also staff needs that hadn't been thought through and hadn't been met and that I was really eager to figure out how to connect better too as an outside curator. So looking back, that's the main thing that I'm able to focus in on. It was a complicated couple of weeks as we were all getting our sea legs, but what it resulted in was an amazing team of curators within MFA Boston, Megan included. And so it's hard for me to reach back to fall 2020 and not also feel the really positive emotion bound up with the time and attention we've devoted since. Megan, were you at MFA Boston at that time? And therefore, were you party to a lot of those discussions ahead of the postponement? Yes, I was part of the staff at that time. And I think internally, there were, as Kate was saying, kind of two sides of the camp. There were those who were concerned about the censorship. And I think there were those who were concerned about the content. And I think those who were concerned about the content had not been in any part of the discussions about the exhibition. So I think that there was kind of a lot of unknown territory at the time of the postponement. I think that I fell into the camp of being concerned about the content. I had seen it about a year before and had been involved in a internal staff group during the closure who evaluated different exhibitions and whether they should move forward. So I think that I had been brought in closer to the process before joining the curatorial team. And I think that a lot of us, um, along with Ethan Lasser, who's the chair of the Art of Americas, who was also on that internal working team with me, had similar concerns about how we were contextualizing this show within the MFA. Right. One of the interesting things to me, and and I think this was covered a fair amount of the time, I certainly wrote about it at the time, was it seemed like there had been an element of pre-thinking about that content in terms of the commissioning for the catalogue, in the sense that, for instance, Glenn Ligon was commissioned and wrote a very thoughtful piece about Guston. He talked about how Guston had sort of launched himself into so-called muck and mire, as Glenn puts it, of American culture. Was it just felt that that didn't go far enough? Maybe, Megan, you can answer that. To what extent did you bear in mind the fact that there had been an element of commissioning, and to what extent was it felt that it perhaps wasn't enough just to commission for the catalogue. It had to be a much broader outreach to broader communities, for instance, that wouldn't buy the catalogue, that would just visit the exhibition. Yeah, I think what we had 
as a group, a lot of discussions about big A and little a. And the big A being kind of the art world that was very clued into the controversy, clued into the pause, clued into who Gustin was beforehand, what this meant. And then we thought about kind of the little a, which is, you know, the vast majority of our visitors who enjoy our museums for a whole host of reasons. And that this controversy and this pause wasn't probably going to be front of mind for them. And that one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we did was contextualize Gustin. Um, and I've been saying that you can't come at Gustin through the hooded imagery. If you start there, you're really missing the point and you're missing who he is, which brings you to the hooded imagery in a different way. So I think in terms of us as a curatorial team, we definitely were thinking very micro level at the community of Boston and the community of the MFA and how could we bring them along in this journey that A, didn't start at the hoods and B, did not assume that they had a deep knowledge of Gustin or his work or his biography to help them through this exhibition. Kate, did that mean reorganising the exhibition in terms of the flow, in terms of how you went at Guston's work from room to room? There are sort of two answers to that question. The first answer is no, because we were uh, in Boston meant to be the last venue of four. The postponement actually hasn't changed the timing of our exhibition that much, though we are now the lead venue of four, which has been the biggest change for us. But the, the reason I bring up that ordering and that timing is because we didn't have an installation design. We didn't have an interpretive plan. We didn't have a fixed narrative flow yet because we, we weren't preparing to open our doors. Uh, we still had a good year and a half uh, or thereabouts ahead of us for that planning with the original pandemic postponed schedule. The other answer to that question is more about what I believe is different about the narrative flow. You know, I know my own thinking about the narrative flow of the show has changed in collaboration with my three partner co-curators at MFA Boston over the last year and a half. So the checklist we had developed well pre-postponement, and that hasn't changed much. That checklist came together for me thinking very chronologically about Gustin's work, wanting to make sure that the full span was thoughtfully represented. And so that for me meant working relatively stepwise from the earliest work, 1930, through to the last work in the show, which is dated to 1980. When we came together as a new team of four internally in Boston last winter, we wanted to set chronology aside initially in our discussions and approach that same checklist thematically, looking for uh, other kinds of through lines, other kinds of threads. And the resulting show now is a mixture of both. We've mixed chronology in every gallery while trying, to Megan's point, to be sure that we're still telling Gustin's story in a narratively logical way for visitors who don't know the typical arc of the career. So that approach feels really new for me and my thinking about Gustin since the postponement. And Megan, can you tell us something about the interpretive materials? Because it seems to me that that's a huge difference. Actually, now the people that come to see this exhibition are going to find out a hell of a lot more about Philip Guston the man. It seems to me you've put him front and centre and and perhaps given a, a kind of framework for understanding why he might present Klansman. 
Right. One of the interpretive items that we have running throughout the show is a timeline. And that timeline is both biographical for Philip Gustin, as well as kind of talking about the systems of white supremacy that have moved throughout his life. And there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination between those two. And I think the reason why we've done that is to show the influences upon his life throughout his career and even beforehand so that you understand how he, you know, arrived at certain imagery, including the Klan imagery. He saw them in L.A as a child. He thought about them as an adult. We have a Life magazine from 1946 where he is appearing at the end of the issue and in the middle, it's about a four-page spread with lots of photos about the Klan and their supposed comeback. So, you know, you can imagine him flipping through that issue to look for his own piece and seeing a four-page spread on the Klan beforehand. So, you know, that's bringing back thoughts and feelings that he's had throughout his life that have continued. So when you think about the influence of the Klan and kind of that fear that we talk about from a childhood then through an adulthood. You can understand why the hood started to appear and continuously appear. I do also like to point out that the kind of comical hoods that usually center around the controversy of his work appeared in 1970 at a show in Marlborough Gallery in New York. Those paintings were painted between 1968 and 1970. Would lose in the context had we not pointed it out to you is that he was drawing hoods long before that. He was kind of playing with these themes and motifs throughout his career. So it's not as if in 1968 he just started drawing hoods. And so I think that's the kind of context that we hope to give people. And the achronology of, you know, putting early works with later works really points back and forth to the themes of this is where it started, this is where it ended up. And you can see that back and forth play throughout the exhibition. At the end, we have two pieces called Dial and Tower, which take an abstract work and one of those kind of comical pieces from 1970 and really play them against each other. And you can see, even though at first blush, they are very different pieces, they're actually very similar. The other thing I like to point out about the hoods is that the reception of them initially from journalists was, and I should point out white male journalists, was not in the content, but really in his abandonment of abstract and moving into figuration. And, you know, he was a successful abstract painter. He had a lot of colleagues, such as Pollock, who he grew up with in high school and lived with again in New York. And many of his friends and colleagues abandoned him when he moved to this figuration. But what we have learned and what I have learned is that that figuration really starts in the abstract. And he has been quoted as talking about figures appearing in that abstract work. So to many of his friends and contemporaries, the abstract work was abandoned immediately. And to Gustin, the figuration was coming out in the abstract. So it's more of a general upward motion to figuration. It wasn't just an abrupt change for him. That's right. Kate, do you want to say a little more about that in terms of the way that the idea of the head, not necessarily the hood, but the head was so much something he was focusing on all the way through those abstract paintings of the 60s, wasn't it? He was there consistently figuring out how he could perhaps create a figurative image at the heart of them. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's right. The opening gallery of our exhibition actually is titled after a rhetorical question that Gustin himself asked, a quote from him from the late 70s, speaking about this late 60s moment that Megan was just describing when he was building toward that notorious Marlborough Gallery show. 
And the the quote that we've lifted is, what kind of man am I? We carry that question structure forward in all of our gallery titles, inspired by that first one. But that opening gallery introduces Gustin through that question, through his posing of the question and his reckoning with himself from early work all the way through late work, which was a a kind of self-reckoning that often took place on the surface of his canvases, whatever the canvas itself might be depicting or revealing in terms of imagery or non-imagery. But the motif that holds all of the works together in that opening gallery is the head form, which is one of the motifs that we see as most consistent from early through to late work. And that can include the hood form, although we don't introduce the clan hood figure in that opening gallery, but we're sort of building toward it. We look at masking and unmasking or the covering or turning away of the face or the revealing of the face in works from the 1940s. You mentioned the the head forms of the 1960s, the sort of mid to late 60s abstract work, uh, which do get referred to as the heads, one of those features in our opening gallery. So the head form up to and including the hooded figure is really where we begin. Although I want to say too that the kind of looping and the circling back and the returns of form in Gustin's work is not just about tracing motifs for us. That's where we started in our work together because it's easiest to start there. And we knew that the hood motif itself needed our you know thoughtful approach through Gustin's other motifs and how they also operate. But we've worked really hard to think about the space of the studio and Gustin's painting process, the way that he applied paint to the canvas, for example, and helping visitors see how he developed processes for applying paint, layering paint, painting by erasure in the 1950s and early 1960s in his kind of high abstract period that then carry forward. He began establishing the palette that we recognize as signature Gustin, the pink, of course, but also these unusual oranges and greens and, of course, cadmium red and black, all of those colors appear in some of his earliest canvases before they solidify into a kind of signature later. So we do look at the head forms, we do look at these returning motif loops that he found himself in, but we also are trying to attend to his working process more broadly and also I think pretty intimately. And is it right that you have, in the interpretive materials, and I mean, it was in the catalogue anyway, you've emphasised his Jewishness. And of course, his Jewishness is bound up with all sorts of complexities because his name was Goldstein and he changed it to Guston. And there was sort of guilt potentially in the fact that he had changed his name. So to what extent do you therefore explain his Jewishness through the show? The second gallery of our show does circle around Gustin's earliest paintings. And for us, those paintings came together as a group largely through thinking about Gustin's name change, which happened around 1935. We don't have a precise date for it, but we know around that year he began using the name Gustin. We do have a couple of paintings in the show from 1935 that show his pre-name change signatures. You can read Philip Goldstein in, in the bottom corners of those two canvases. And we center the gallery around Gustin's name change partly in order to, yes, introduce him as the youngest son of Jewish immigrants who was encountering the Klan in Los Angeles at a 
time when Klan membership was at its height in Los Angeles in the 20s and early 30s, encountering the Klan through a, a particular, more personal lens of anti-Semitism. The Klan, of course, perpetrated violence against African-Americans and Jewish people and immigrants and Catholics quite broadly. But Gustin's most personal experience was of anti-Semitic violence. He grew up also with family stories about anti-Semitic violence, his family having left uh, Eastern Europe at a time of intense pogroms in 1905. So we do situate Gustin's early biography very much around and again building toward his name change. It also figures for us in this larger question of what kind of man am I and the sort of the self-reckoning and the sense in which Gustin was always searching for his, his sense of himself within the studio, on the canvas, within the art world, but also in terms of thinking about the place of the painter in a larger world. You know, how does the studio relate outward to all manner of oppression happening outside of the studio? So presenting Gustin's name change as a way into thinking about his Jewishness in that early gallery, I think does help us make this larger inside-outside oscillation and tension palpable early in the show. We do also bring in Holocaust atrocity photographs and thinking about Gustin, many people's first encounter in, in America with that photography in 1945, but Gustin's in particular. I don't know, Megan, if you want to speak to, to that part of the show, the opt-in case or, or something along those lines. Sure. So as Kate was saying, the opt-in case has kind of a sliding cover. We've decided to put covers over sensitive images that we've added for context, not over Gustin's work, but things that we have added as a curatorial team that we feel we want to give visitors agency to. The images that Gustin and many others would have encountered came from a show by Joseph Pulitzer called Lest We Forget. There were photographs that he took when he visited liberated concentration camps. And what I find really striking about these images is that they were extremely large, larger than the average person height. And the photos that we have included along with the book that they appear in show people dressed up kind of in their Sunday best, walking in single file lines against these gruesome images, white gloves on their hands, purses on their arms. And it seems as if you took away those images, how normal of a scene it would have been for the time. But when you think about this is how people were digesting such gruesome imagery and coming to realize that they had not known beforehand. You can imagine that when when we believe that Gustin might have seen these images, how striking they would have been just for the average viewer, but how visceral an experience it would have been for someone of Jewish descent. So, you know, that type of influence, again, is something that you see later on in his work, but we're kind of putting you into Gustin's shoes and showing while uh, Pulitzer was, you know, doing a great service to the United States by showing these pictures and bringing light to these atrocities, the way in which it was presented was clearly, you know, maybe not thought of with the same care and compassion. So, you know, I think that maybe he thought about that counterplay of, you know, bringing awareness, but doing so in probably not as a careful way. So, you know, thinking about the anti-Semitism in that era, you know, I think that it draws upon how complicit people can be without trying to be complicit. They could, you know, not have that sensitivity even though they are trying to bring to light something that's so horrible and, and making sure that it doesn't kind of fade into the background. Indeed. And complicity is so bound up with the way Gustin responds to these kind of issues, Kate, in the sense that the image called the studio, which is an artist with a canvas in front of him, is one extrapolates Gustin himself. And therefore, he is placing himself in the role of a Klansman. His 
response to it is deeply complex in so many different ways, isn't it? It is. The complexity and, and sometimes the contradictory nature of the work was something that we talked about a lot as we were coming together as a, a new team last winter and that we really wanted to foreground and to present to visitors. And the painting, the studio that you mentioned, has become a, a kind of crux of the show. It's at the center of the center in our show. We've built a kind of room within a room in our central gallery. And in that room within a room resides the painting, the studio, which is a clan hood painting at an easel, painting another clanhood, maybe a self-portrait or a portrait of a, a peer. And the room that we've built around this painting is based on the painting wall that still stands in Gustin's Woodstock studio. So it has um, a different feel from the larger gallery that it's at the center of, which was one way for us to literally try to insert the space of the studio, the space of making it into the, you know, the white-walled museum space of display and to make that inside-outside tension that we were speaking about earlier experiential and palpable. The painting, the studio, is one, and the clan hoods in general from that moment, the late 60s, the studio dates to 1969, is one that Gustin spoke about sometimes really explicitly, you know, claiming these hoods as self-portraits, claiming that sense of his own complicity, how close he felt any of us could be to evil, to use his word. And other times he spoke more non-committally, wanting to be more focused on talking about his process and these images simply streaming out of him, you know, without particular political intent. He's almost giddy, isn't he? Once he fixes on the hoods as a motif, he's running away with it. It's almost like he's he's got this sort of charge of adrenaline when he's painting those pictures. It's true. Giddy is a great word for it. He talks about how much he loved being in those two years of nonstop painting of these hooded figures, that he couldn't stop painting them, that he had hundreds of ideas for how to paint them. He describes himself not so much as a painter, as a movie director, as the comparison he draws and the kinds of scenes that he was churning out. Maybe the studio doesn't feel like a mundane scene to the average visitor who doesn't have their own studio or doesn't visit a studio typically, but so many of the other scenes are of these hooded figures driving around in their cars or sitting at home in domestic spaces that could feel commonplace, if not out right familiar yeah and Megan to what extent do you encourage the audience in a way to see that complexity and to form their own views if you like while making them prepared for what to see I guess you're also wanting them to imbue that personal reaction in in a sort of broader framework and emerge from it with very much their own interpretation that's correct. In terms of preparing the viewer, what we have done is created a statement that appears in the beginning of the exhibition as well as before the, the large hooded paintings that just really give um, a sense of how to care for oneself throughout the exhibition. While we, you know, obviously pay close attention to the large hooded imagery, many of the images could be triggering in a way. And what we want to do is allow people to have the agency throughout the exhibition to really experience this in their own way. If you'd walk through the exhibition, you won't see a lot of labels. You know, you're not going to be reading a book as you walk through. We kind of give you enough for you to think on your own. And as the questions that we've posed, as Kate had spoken about, 
out, really give you the ability to kind of move through this space however you feel best and allow you to draw your own conclusions. I think as we come to the hooded imagery, what we wanted to make sure that people did was if they chose to see them, that they didn't just kind of breeze by them. They're very brightly lit against white walls. The studio space, Kate was talking about the room in the room, is very confined with a lot of hooded imagery. So you really have to confront them. But we don't tell you how to do that. We kind of leave that open to you. Immediately following that gallery is a literal space for how you can interpret these works. We have a a visitor response area, which allows people to write on cards kind of their feelings, either through prompts that we've given them or just however they'd like to share. And we've been seeing a lot of great responses. We also have a mirrored response online where people can leave comments. So we want to make sure that we are not the only voices in the exhibition that we have made this exhibition for are being heard and seen as well. And so through those mechanisms, you really are going to see how people are processing that. And they're going to be able to share that with other people who are going to be reading their comments. Yet to be known how we will contextualize and evaluate those comments afterwards. But it leads a lot to the imagination of how we can do that and how we can further share the conversations that we hope will be had between the visitors themselves. It seems to me, Megan, that in going through this process, You've done a lot of what was talked about in 2020 in the weeks after George Floyd's murder in terms of museums waking up to the broader issues that surround them and not being immersed in the big A bubble, if you like, that you were discussing earlier on. Mm -hmm. In a way, is this kind of a blueprint for how you might develop shows going forward in terms of interpretation? We're hoping so. I mean, I think that, you know, many people might not know how big of a machine an exhibition can be and how many people it includes in a length of time. So that's something that we really need to think about thoughtfully. And it's not something that will be immediately seen in the next exhibition that opens. It really needs to be a process in which the Q and other people who are involved are really buying into this new model. So it's something that we're going to work on. I do also want to say that kind of 2020 was a reckoning publicly for museums, but I think a number of museums, such as the MFA, were doing a lot of work internally and really thinking about how we as staff at the MFA could really clean inside the house first. And so, you know, while externally 2020 was a reckoning, I do want to say there's a lot of work that museums have been doing internally to to help their staff and bring them along in different subjects in different ways that has really been able to get us to the point where we are with Gustin. And I think what people are now seeing with this exhibition are kind of the fruits of that labor. It's not work that ends, it's ongoing. And so there are parts of this exhibition, such as a visitor response, we have done in at least two other shows. And, you know, we've modified it now so that it is um, available online. But those other shows were really the framework for us to begin to bring in the visitor's voice. So I think there's a lot of ways in which 2020 was a kind of forced pivot point. But what it did, I think, is force a lot of the things that we've been doing internally and bringing them out to our larger audience. Kate, I wanted to leave the last word to you. What a great painter Philip Guston is. (laughs) Tell us more about how it feels to actually have the show up and being viewed by the public and and experienced because, you know, he gets, it seems to me, more and more important. In some ways, the focus for this show has even elevated that level of importance. I, I think that's true. I hope it's true. To be honest, it feels a bit surreal still, you know, maybe in part because I'm not there at the museum every day, I'm not based in Boston, though we did spend most of April together there installing, which was uh, such a wonderful time to be together with each other in person. You know, we largely have been Zoom curating the show together in person whenever we can, but also to be, of course, in person with the 
those paintings after looking at them in you know tiny thumbnail maquette versions for so long. I think one of the biggest gifts I've taken from the last year and a half is uh, the close looking that the four of us have been able to do together. We uh, spent time in front of the MFA Boston's Gustin painting the Deluge together last summer. We were able to visit Woodstock together and see paintings in storage in Gustin's former studio there. And then this period of installation was really a chance to revel in that. So now that visitors can come in and take on that close looking themselves, I'm really thrilled. Well, Kate and Megan, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Philip Guston now is at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston until the 11th of September. It travels to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston from the 23rd of October to the 15th of January 2023. The National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. from the 26th of February to the 27th of August 2023. And Tate Modern London from the 3rd of October 2023 to the 25th of February 2024. To hear my in-depth discussion about Philip Guston with the curator Robert Storr, author of the book Philip Guston, A Life Spent Painting, listen to the episode of this podcast from the 18th of September 2020. Coming up, we hear about the UK's first LGBTQ plus museum and a painting by Caterina Angela Pierozzi. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The art world has begun to react to the news that broke on the 2nd of May that the US Supreme Court has prepared a draft of its majority opinion to strike down Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling that legalised abortion nationwide in America. Many artists and curators made strong online statements, though museums have been largely silent. But, as Jory Finkel writes, one exception is the Institute of Contemporary Art, or ICA, in San Francisco, which is offering its new gallery space, set to open to the public this autumn, free of charge to abortion rights activists. It posted a picture of its empty 11,000 square foot space on Instagram with the comment, access to a safe abortion is a human right. If anyone in the San Francisco Bay Area is organising for abortion rights and needs a space to convene, fundraise, etc., please reach out to us. The UK's High Court has recognised NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, as property in a case that's likely to have far-reaching implications for disputes involving digital art. As Rhea Pryor writes, the action was brought in March this year by Lavinia Osborne, the founder of Women in Blockchain Talks, who claimed that two digital works from the Boss Beauties collection, an NFT-based initiative designed to create opportunities and raise funds for women, had been stolen from her online wallet. In a judgement published this week, the judge held that the assets were property and thus able to have access to legal protections. Members of the art trade have warned the British government that London will become a shadow of its former self in just five years if art imports continue to plummet, after it was revealed that the UK's global share of the art market fell by 3% to 17% last year, its lowest in a decade. The latest figures, published in the 2022 Art Basel UBS Global Art Market Report, show that the value of art and antiques imported into the UK in 2020 was $2.1 billion, down one-third on 2019. Imports fell a further 18% last year, leaving them at almost half the value of 2019. Brexit, with the additional paperwork it's prompted, is thought to be the main reason for the sharp decline in imports, which have been further hampered by the pandemic. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can get from the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, Christie's New York presents its 2021 sales series, featuring Pablo Picasso's first major sculpture, groundbreaking works by Jean-Michel Basquiat and Man Ray, and Andy Warhol's iconic Shot Sage Blue Marilyn, poised to be the most expensive 20th century artwork ever to sell at auction. Many of these leading lots hail from the collections of prominent figures of the global art scene, including Thomas and Doris Amann, Anne H. Bass, Rosalind Gersten Jacobs and Melvin Jacobs. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Queer Britain, a museum founded by the charity of the same name, opened in London on the 5th of May and is billed as the UK's first national LGBTQ plus museum. The opening coincides with the 50th anniversary of the UK's inaugural Gay Pride March, and it's one of two cultural institutions focused on the queer community launching in London this spring, the other being a permanent venue dedicated to LGBTQ plus artists founded by the charity Queer Circle in the new design district in Greenwich, South London. The Art Newspaper's chief contributing editor, Gareth Harris, spoke to Matthew Storey, the curator of the first show at Queer Britain, about this landmark moment. Matthew, what's your role at Queer Britain? How are you involved in the project? I'm a volunteer with Queer Britain. I first got involved in the project as part of their expert advisory group, helping them to build and develop their collection. And when the founder, Joseph Galliano, asked me if I wanted to curate the opening display, I jumped at the opportunity. I'm so happy to help this project in any way I can. Why is this kind of institution so important in Britain, do you think? Well, amazingly, we've never had a dedicated LGBTQ plus museum. Other countries, other cities do, but the UK hasn't. And I think it's important because there's such a rich and important history there, a story to be told. I think across the museum sector, we saw that in 2017 with the anniversary celebrations for the partial decriminalisation of sex between men in 1967. And so many cultural institutions rose to the challenge of marking that event that it really showed there was a huge audience, a huge demand, and also an amazing history. And Queer Britain grew out of that anniversary year. The founder, Joseph Galliano, saw this and realised there was a need for a dedicated museum to tell this story. I mean, just to follow up on that, do you think this museum will join up the dots as such? I mean, obviously there are LGBTQ plus objects in collections across the UK, Do you think this will help connect some of those collections and ideas and themes? I think it will. The museum is very well connected to to other institutions, but I think it's actually very important for people to know there is a space that is for them. And the space is for queer people, but it's also for anybody who's interested in learning more about this history. So I think it's, it's very important to have that visibility as well. So tell me about the opening display. It's called Welcome to Queer Britain. You've organised the show. Which archives does it draw from? What sort of images are on display? Well, I wanted to celebrate the charity's achievements so far in this display. 
So I looked at what they'd already collected and a display of photographs seemed a great way to go. So many of the photographs we have on display are images of people. They allow that really direct connection with faces of queer people in the past and also um, the modern day. I wanted it to be an opportunity, if you were new to the work of the project, to see things perhaps you've missed the first time around. So we've got two collections, the MSC Saatchi Getty Images collection, which was a pop-up exhibition, and The Chosen Family, another pop-up exhibition. So it's a great chance to see those again, a great chance to see the Madame F Award, with the only oil painting in the exhibition, a portrait of David Hoyle, the incredible queer performer. And we've also got two new acquisitions, so images that haven't been seen in a Queer Britain project before, so photographs by Ali Crew and Robert Taylor. I think organising an LGBTQ exhibition is challenging. Do you aim it at a younger generation and and give them a history lesson as such? Or is it a case of weighing up the more political works with images that are more accessible? Was it a challenge bringing this show together? Uh, It wasn't a challenge. It was a joy to bring this show together. (laughs) And actually, um, we really were thinking all along about... In this quite small selection of works, how we could be inclusive and how we could represent a breadth of experience and chronology as well. So we've got that fabulous image of the 1870s of two Victorian music hall performers, these women dressed in gorgeous men's clothes. So it's really important to show there's a really long history there. In images of pride, I wanted to combine images of protest and images of celebration to show both sides of that and I also wanted to give a sense of the breadth of the queer community so in the chosen family display we've got gorgeous photos by Alia Romanoli who explores her South Asian heritage Robert Taylor's gorgeous photographs of his sitter Andrea explores black queer heritage so I really wanted to give a sense of the breadth of experience in the queer community, past and present. Uh, yeah, let's just, just go through some of those works, actually, because I visited the show yesterday. It's, it's a small exhibition. It's exquisitely structured, actually. Thank you. And you just mentioned the Chosen Family section, and I love the work of Alia Romanoli, as you said. That really stands out. I think her works have a Bollywood aesthetic... She uses her images to explore queer identity. Her own biracial background is important, I know, in her work. And there's a sense of finding a family, obviously, hence the the title Chosen Families. And choosing your family as such, is, is that the impression you wanted to give with that section? That project was based around this idea of Chosen Family, that so often queer people create their own families of the people around them. It's not always a given that queer people would be accepted by their biological family. And I think that's one of the really beautiful and interesting things about that project. And again, it shows the diversity of experience. So just in that project, you've got images that make you smile, images that make you think. And then also Alia's photographs, they've just got, if you see them, these 
bursts of pure colour, pink and yellow. And there's a joy in those. And I think it's really important to show the joy in the queer experience. And then you also mentioned the other collection you've drawn on, the Getty Images M&C Saatchi collection, comprising historical LGBTQ plus images dating back to the 1870s. I picked out some key works and you mentioned the piece A Couple of Swells. I think that dates from around 1870. Shows two women in top hat and tails. And I suppose this is an important work reflecting, as you say, gender nonconformity. It is, and as I say, it's very important, I think, to show there's a long history of queer presence. Queer people have always been part of the human experience. So I was very keen to show those older images as well. And in that collection also, I've got Diana, Princess of Wales in there. I wanted to show the importance of allies to the community across history as well. And some really important historical figures as well. Maureen Colcan, she was Britain's first openly lesbian MP in the 1970s. The Guardian reported last year she lost her seat in a general election. She was effectively disavowed by the Labour Party after coming out as a lesbian. So why is it important to highlight those sort of figures as well? Do you think people will have already started to forget them? I think showing those figures is important, actually, to educate people because that was a history I didn't know about until recently, that we had an openly lesbian MP in 1978. And these histories can be forgotten if we don't mark them, if we don't display them in our museums, in our public spaces. And you can contrast that today when you've got, because we've also got in the show photographs of Sandy Toxic and Ruth Davidson, so contemporary political figures who are actually now part of the political scene in the UK. So we can show that progress as well and how those pioneers, like Maureen Cahoon, paved the way for people who are representing the community today. I also think as a more mature gay man myself... I didn't expect to feel so emotionally connected to some of the works. It was fascinating to see a portrait of Justin Fashionu, who died in 1998, I think. He was the first openly gay footballer in the UK. And again, it's about bringing these people to the fore as such, because I'm not sure younger audiences will even be aware of him, as you say. So that's another important inclusion, isn't it? It is, and for Justin Fashionu, there's so often a focus on how his life ended, and that was important, but too often we don't talk about his incredible achievements as well. I mean, he was an unbelievably successful footballer, and his career was stellar. And I really wanted to, just in that short uh, museum label, emphasise that and, and, his, and his achievement as well. And what about Section 28? This was the 1988 law that prohibited promoting, and I do put that in very visible quotation marks, that prohibited promoting homosexuality. You touch on it in the exhibition. I think there's an image of the actors Michael Cashman and Ian McKellen on a protest march. I thought there may be a little bit more about Section 28 in the show. I know you obviously needed to be selective, 
obviously it was important to, to include that as well, but do you think more still needs to be said in, about Section 28 as such? I mean, what's always surprising about Section 28 is how recent it was. I mean, that's what I grew up. I went to school under Section 28. I think it's so many queer people in the UK lived with that. So it is important to talk about it, to show how recent that was, how very recently that law was repealed as well. And of course, it was so important for galvanising campaigners and campaigning groups. So I did want in the exhibition to put that in, in a group of photographs which explore these acts of protest and also the individuals who have led the way, actually, in fighting against discriminatory laws. There was one image I wasn't sure about. Why did you include the picture of Grayson Perry? I mean, queer identity can take, and gender nonconformity can take so many incredible and beautiful and creative forms. And I think Grayson Perry is this out-transvestite who's so central, actually, to contemporary British culture, just seemed to have earned his place in the display to represent that range of experience. Okay. Can I just clarify, will Queer Britain have an archive? Or is it drawing on an archive? Is it drawing from the Bishopsgate Institute? Did you work with the Institute? Queer Britain has its own collection and I've been helping to shape its collection policy for the last few years. So there is an archive building up. People are offering their own collections to Queer Britain, which is incredibly exciting. We have been working with the Bishopsgate Institute to store that collection but Queer Britain is a collecting institution it is building its own distinctive collection of queer history and artefacts relating to that. It'll be very significant to see how that collection builds up I have to say that will be the backbone of the institution and in terms also of its exhibition program I know possibly you know Joseph Galliano may want to tell us more about that in the future. Yes this is the very beginning really of the Queer Britain project. And I wanted this exhibition to be as much as anything a call to watch this space because this exhibition is on until early July and then there will be another one. They're really welcoming people to the project and to the collection opening later this year. Now, you have another role, your art, design and LGBTQ plus history curator for historic royal palaces, which I think sounds like the most incredible job. (laughs) So what does that involve? Because not many people are aware of this post and it's a key post. So tell us more, please. (laughs) Well, it's a dream job. I I absolutely love my job at historic royal palaces. So actually, I, I will say my official job title is collections curator. Okay. So currently I am looking after our incredible collection of 10,000 items of royal and court dress. I've worked across all six sites that historic royal palaces look after. And a, a great part of my role is also leading on LGBTQ plus research and interpretation at the historic royal palaces. So was this job created for you or did it develop organically as such? Because I'm interested to pinpoint how historic royal palaces, why they decided to to focus on the LGBTQ plus aspect of history. 
I really came to it as that is my interest. I mean, I'm, I'm a part of that community, I'm a part of the LGBTQ plus community. I'm a gay man myself. So telling that history, telling those stories has always just felt very natural and very important. And Historic Royal Palaces has a real commitment to inclusive histories. So it's been a joy for me to lead on that area and to develop my expertise, to develop the expertise of the organisation and to have some incredible outputs, actually. We've done um, some events like Long Live Queen James in 2017, which was a Jacobean drag show in Polari, which honestly was one of the best nights of my life. It was so much fun. (laughs) We've done tours at Hampton Court Palace at the Tower of London. Uh, We did Queer Lives at the Tower, which was again a very immersive theatrical experience at the Tower of London just before lockdown hit in 2020. And we've just been working to get those stories out in any way you can. So if you look at the Historic Royal Palace's curator's blog, you'll find quite a few stories that I've written myself or I've worked with incredible, often work placement students, actually. So helping to develop the, uh, the next generation of curators in their research and writing to get wonderful stories out there. Yeah, I was really struck by your queer walk through Hampton Court's palace last year. You highlighted some really interesting Artifacts. You pointed out the terracotta portrait of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, I think, Did, yes. who fell in love with a teenager, Antinous, around 123 AD. Yeah. And the blog, I recommend it to all our listeners, just go and read Matthew's blog, because you do draw out some fascinating things. Thank you so much. Now, I really wanted to show that in a place like Hampton Court, queer histories are literally built into the walls, into the bricks and the stones, and, of course, the collections and the histories of that wonderful place. Thanks so, so much, Matthew. That's really been helpful, and I encourage people to pop along to Queer Britain, which opens this week. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Queer Britain is open now, and Queer Circle opens on the 9th of June. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. In the late 17th century, Caterina Angela Pierozzi was a celebrated artist. She was the second of only two women, the first being Artemisia Gentileschi, to be admitted into the Accademia del Disegno in Florence, and she was patronised by the Medici court. But like many women artists of her time, Pierozzi has been mostly forgotten by art history, partly because of the fact that not a single work of hers was thought to survive. But now, a painting that was discovered in 2020 and attributed to Pierozzi is on show at the Colnaghi gallery in London as part of the exhibition Forbidden Fruit, Female Still Life and with a six-figure price tag. Our acting digital editor Amy Dawson spoke to Colnaghi's global director Candida Ludovica de Angelis Corvi about this rediscovery. So Candida, thanks so much for joining us. We're here to talk about a specific work which is in the exhibition at the Colnaghi gallery in London which is called Forbidden Fruit. And it's showing still lives by female old masters or old mistresses, as we often like to call them. Why have you decided to put this show together now? Well, we've been, uh, first of all, I wanted to say, exceptionally overwhelmed by the international consensus around exhibition. We opened it on Wednesday, the 27th of April, and probably due to its nature, the topic of female agency and dignity, but also to the interconnectedness of other literary topos, more or less, that can at least be summarized in three, the history of Kurt, the diplomatic exchanges of goods, 
then the diffusion and change in taste, and finally, the issue of the interconnectedness of art and science. We have been receiving consensus from different voices, which definitely added to the type of mission that we are trying to uphold, that is definitely one of scholarship-oriented mission to rediscover and promote uh, all master paintings and at the same time find new discoveries in the art market. We definitely thought that uh, there was a lot of resonance and alignment with what uh, institutions in the United States, but also in Europe, just think about uh, the Biennale's opening with uh, this incredible attention devoted to female artists has been doing. And we thought that it would have been interesting to do an exhibition that could represent a tribute to the incredible creativity of uh, all master female painters. But we decided to choose a niche focus, exactly the genre of still life, because it is in this genre that uh, these artists managed to express themselves to the fullest. So it was extremely important for us to show how, exactly at the beginning of the modern century, that we consider and um, normally identify with the final year of the 16th century and uh, with the full breadth of debate that took place uh, in the 17th century, the agency and dignity of women reach historically low levels. But exactly at that time, the debate in favor of or against the position of women in society was extremely fervent because it concerned also other matter, tradition versus innovation, the privileges of the past versus the new ferments of the new generations or the new minorities. So these paintings can be read even as intellectual pamphlets to the independence, to, to a way of living that was differently perceived at the time. And then finally, it was extremely important to us to, to capture this theme of uh, the interconnectedness of culture. And I think this exhibition is looking at the status of women, as you've said, and the agency of women. And as you so astutely point out, this is something that we are looking at today with the Venice Biennale being full of women and even politically in the US, this shocking situation with the Supreme Court with the Roe versus Wade abortion leak. So fascinating to look back hundreds of years and, and see the starts of those debates in a very different way. But let's talk specifically about one of the artists in the show, Caterina Angela Pierosi, who was born in the late 17th century. And she was the second of only two women, the first being now a very well-known kind of household name to art history enthusiasts, Artemisia Gentileschi. The second woman after her to be admitted into the Accademia del Disegno in Florence. But other than that, there's very little information that we know about her, despite her being quite famous in her lifetime. So can you shed some light on her biography for us and let us know more about her life? Absolutely, absolutely. As you can imagine, uh, the biographical information for Caterina Angela Pierozzi at the time remained uh, limited. So a classical reference uh, in a literature to reconstruct an artist's biography for all the artists that were born after Giorgio Vasari is definitely Filippo Baldinucci and its famous biographical dictionary called Notizie de Professori del Disegno da Cimabue Inqua. 
It is actually in uh, this oeuvre uh, that was published in six volumes at the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century that uh, biographies become the most important uh, sources for reconstructing the life of some Florentine artists. And uh, actually for Caterina Angela Pierozzi, we know from a paragraph that Baldinucci wrote that she was famous for painting uh, something that was measuring circa due braccia. That was a very small measurement translated in, uh, in centimeters today that can allow us to understand that she was probably extremely skilled at uh, miniatures uh, that definitely demanded these extremely accurate details, these uh, soft-handed, the, the hands um, probably of a woman. We also know that uh, from the inventory of Villa Poggio Imperiale, that was the residence of Vittoria della Rovere, uh, Caterina Angela Pierozzi, and I will talk more about it, was a protégé of uh, Vittoria della Rovere. In the inventory of her residence, uh, we found a note uh, dated 1692 of a miniature uh, a woman holding a small image of the Annunciation. Well, uh, the image of the Annunciation was uh, extremely allegorical for the time. Uh, and uh, this allows us to understand that if Caterina Angela Pirozzi was entrusted to paint an Annunciazione, this meant that her status as a court painter was extremely recognized. And indeed, as you mentioned, in 1684, we have a document attesting the fact that she was elected to the Academia del Disegno, the only woman elected in that century together with Artemisia Gentileschi, that to go back for the theme of the interconnectedness of these women with today's contemporaries, as they probably wrote the very first Me Too call to action. As we know, Artemisia Gentileschi had a particular story, but her, her call, her, her modernity into asserting her own rights definitely make her stand as a figures of great resemblance and, um, and influence for, for any girl and woman nowadays. Mm. But uh, what is a of extreme interest uh, with reference to this uh, particular annunciation is, first of all, that it's the only known work by your end. It's signed and dated. Secondly, that it definitely fits this field of study that is dedicated to female old master painters. But the fact that Caterina portrayed and created the Annunciation speaks volume. Why? Because uh, the Annunciation is a very peculiar iconography. Well, the Annunciation is the announcement of the virginal conception to Mary, made by the Archangel Gabriel, as told in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes in Latin is referred to as conceptio domini, that is the conception of our Lord. It's a fundamental moment for, no matter what our sensitivity towards religion can be, it's a fundamental and crucial moment in theology because uh, the Annunciation certifies the alliance between God and the humanity. After the famous uh, sentence pronounced by Mary, fiat, that means uh, let it be, let the, the will of God be. Now, in our Annunciation, we have uh, the true bust of the Archangel and the Virgin Mary surrounded by a border of uh, exclusively rendered flowers. Inscribed, we see uh, the name, the native city and date of the artist herself, 
we can notice immediately that the materials used uh, are extremely precious. That's meaning that uh, the commission was definitely for an important object, a devotional object for an important person. The miniature also reflects the Florentine tradition of the disegno, so the drawing techniques, in order made possible to realize the perspective that represents the big difference between Florentine school and Venetian school. The Venetian used to represent perspective through volumes, through tones, while the Florentines used to do it with the lines, with the drawings. It's a, definitely an incredible a graphic accomplishment, also linked to the botanical interest of the Medici, who had established a botanical gardens at the time and became the very first patrons of a cultural milieu where art and nature, art and science, could definitely always interact one with the other. The work by Pierozzi, as you say, one of the reasons why she's remained forgotten to art history in many ways is because it was believed that none of her work had survived. So this piece that you're showing is, is actually the only piece that we know to exist by her and it's convincingly signed and dated to be attributed to her. And the piece was actually discovered in 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about how it was discovered, I believe in France, and how it came to be known to be by her? Yes, absolutely. We are very grateful to the scholars that allowed us to reconstruct the provenance and the stylistic attributes of the work itself. Our uh, experts in house at Colnaghi found the work and managed to bring it in this shape to the exhibition. And actually, this inaugurates also the relaunch within our company of uh, the drawings department at Colnaghi. Because after all, let's not forget that uh, this work has been, has been realized on vellum, that is a parchment. So this uh, always refers to that uh, very complex, very niche collecting categories of the drawings and of the works on paper. What has been uh, interesting for us is that thanks to this rediscovery, we may now be able, and this is probably a characteristic that uh, art dealers should be recognized with. So we find always work, not just for commercial purposes. Uh, and Konagi is, uh, is actually very much uh, prone towards ac- academic depth. Uh, but we find works that then can result in new scholarship rediscoveries. And we, we definitely believe that uh, by fully recognizing the attribution of these artworks to Caterina Angela Pierozzi, new works may arise and uh, her corpus and uh, her known oeuvre could definitely be enlarged. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about it and hopefully this will lead to lots more discoveries of works by Pierozzi but also other old masters or old mistresses. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Forbidden Fruit Female Still Life is at Colnaghi in London until the 24th of June. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Kate and Megan, Gareth and Matthew and Amy and Candida. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.